Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word and into our hearts. Teach us and encourage us with things. Correct us where we need to be corrected and spur us on. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Compromise occurs when there's disagreement with two parties. Both sides make concessions so that some agreement can be reached. Now the word compromise often has bad connotations but often compromise is very necessary. Imagine you want to sell your house and you'd like to sell it for $800,000. There's a buyer who wants to buy it for $600,000. At this point there is no deal. But if you can both compromise and agree that the sale will take place for $700,000, there we go, we have a deal. Sometimes compromise is necessary. And sometimes compromise can actually be really good. Picture the following family scenario. You're a bloke. It's Saturday night. You want to watch Mission Impossible on video. Your wife wants to watch Pride and Prejudice. Your kids want to watch Toy Story. What on earth could you do? Is there any possible way you compromise and solve that in a good way? Well, of course, you could settle on watching The Princess Bride and everyone (laughs) would be happy. The art of the compromise, it can be a really good thing. But of course, there are situations where compromise is neither necessary nor good and in fact can be a real curse. You go to the doctor. He says you need a knee reconstruction. You need an operation. You say, I don't want to have an operation. So you compromise and decide to have half the operation. I mean, it's stupid, isn't it? You know, that would be a curse. And compromise is often highly undesirable in other situations, but there can be great pressure too. Compromise, And this is particularly true for Christians. Imagine you're a Christian. You're a teenager at a party. A joint is being passed around. Someone says, here, the puff. You go, no, I won't. And they go, come on, everyone else is just this once. You can picture the scenario. Or you're away on a work trip. You retire to your room after dinner. Some people have had a bit too much to drink. And an attractive colleague comes in and sprawls himself across your bed. There's a bit of pressure to compromise. Or you're a Christian minister in Hong Kong. The Chinese government says you're not allowed to preach on topics such as the second coming of Christ. Will you cut that out of all your sermons? Pressure to compromise. Can I say each of those scenarios are based on situations which I'm roughly aware of. Pressure to compromise can be very powerful. Now many of us, in fact I'd say all of us come under pressure to compromise our faith at some time or other. It could be in our families, it could be amongst our peers, it could be down at the club, it could be in the workplace, it could be in the schoolyard. Now for most of us, we may not be pressured to compromise with the threat of loss of life, as some Christians are around the world, uh, but we can be pressured to compromise and the threat is loss of comfort, loss of social acceptance, perhaps loss of job, loss of relationships and the like. Now how should we as Christians think about this topic of compromise? Is it worth resisting compromise on matters of Christian belief and lifestyle? And if it is worth resisting, which I would urge you that it is, is there any help or encouragement that we can get in those times when resisting compromise is difficult? 
See, these are all things we encounter, they are all things we need to come to a mind on and they are all things which we need assistance with. And thankfully, uh, the passage which was read to us uh, from Revelation chapter 2 addresses this very issue. Now, as many of you would know, we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. There are seven letters by Jesus to the seven churches of Asia Minor and we're up to our third week of the series. Today's passage is Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. It'd be helpful if you had your Bible uh, open. Jesus is specifically addressing the church at Pergamum uh, and our sermon is entitled The Compromised Church. Uh, A handout, if you were here you would have received this when you came in or if you're at home hopefully you've downloaded it from the church website. And firstly we're going to think about point one, resisting compromise, verses 12 and 13. Then we're going to look at allowing compromise, verses 14 to 16. And then finally encouragement to resist, i.e. resisting compromise, looking at the whole passage. So that's where we're going. So let's start off by thinking the first point, One, resisting compromise. Let's look at verse 12 together if you have your Bibles there. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. The speaker here is of course Jesus. The church specifically addressed is the church in Pergamum but it's a message for all believers including us. Now, to better appreciate Jesus' words here to Pergamum, a bit of context can help. Pergamum, as you may know, was located in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is now what we would refer to as uh, Western Turkey. Now, Pergamum was not as big a place as Ephesus and Smyrna, the two cities we've been considering over the previous two weeks. Neither was it as commercially successful a place as Ephesus and Smyrna. Pergamum was more of an administrative city. At this time it was probably the capital of the province of Asia and so it's a bit more like Canberra than let's say Sydney or Melbourne. Not only was it the administrative capital of that area, it was probably also the capital, in inverted commas, of emperor worship for that reason. Uh, As you would know at the time emperor worship was one of the major religions and it was enforced pretty strongly by uh, the administrators of the Roman Empire. Now I preached on Smyrna last week up at the factory and in my version of the sermon uh, I said that Smyrna would have had very strong political and religious ties with Rome but could I say that I think Pergamon may have had even stronger political and religious slash emperor worship ties with Rome. Pergamum, in terms of emperor worship, would have been a pretty hardcore place. So being a Christian there is essentially really quite difficult. It will perhaps be like today being a Christian in Mecca, right? Not the easiest place to be a Christian. Or if we're in the 1950s, it will be like being a Christian in Moscow, right? Really hard. So in one sense, the Christians in Pergamum I guess, uh, in one sense, are deep behind enemy lines. Their very existence is a problem to the prevailing regime. And so the pressure to compromise in face of either real or threatened persecution would have been very real. It would have pressed in on the believers. Now, just a few decades after this letter was written in nearby Bithynia, we have uh, 
a record of a particular letter which was written by the local governor, a guy called Pliny, to the emperor of Rome, Emperor Trajan. Remember, this is really nearby, just a few years later. And Pliny writes to the emperor uh, about how he should deal with the Christians he comes across in his region. And he tells the emperor what he actually does. He says, look, I have asked them in person if they are Christians and if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and third time with a warning of the punishment awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for, persecu- for, for execution. Okay? That's the way Pliny dealt with Christians. Ask them three times, are you Christians? Yes, yes, yes. Execution. If, however, the Christians renounced Christ and worshipped the traditional gods and Caesar, they were released. Now, this is 20 years later, very close by. Uh, this sort of practice may have been around in Pergamum at the time of this letter or it may have been fairly close to coming around. So it gives you a bit of an idea of the sort of level of opposition which Christians here had to face. Now, how do you think the church at Pergamum fared in this sort of environment? If God's giving them the report card, what's going to be on their report card? I mean, you'd understand it if a lot of them compromised, wouldn't you? But here's the impressive thing. The passage here says that they were faithful amidst persecution even to the point of death. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. I mean, if that doesn't give you an indication that it's a pretty hard place to be a Christian, (laughs) that would, you know. Yet, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, from what we can work out from that, it seems that fairly recently there was a period of persecution of one of their Christian brothers, a guy by the name of Antipas, presumably because he stood up for his faith and failed to compromise, was put to death because of his faith. And that didn't dissuade the Christians there, It didn't encourage them to compromise. They stood true. God empowered the Christians in Pergamum not to compromise here, but to stand firm in their belief. God empowered them just the way God has empowered millions of other Christians throughout history to stand firm. And we know many Christians who God has empowered in this way. I mean, just looking at the pages of the New Testament, we know that Stephen stood firm, that James stood firm and Antipas stood firm, all of whom were killed for their faith. I looked at uh, the Open Doors Christian website. Open Doors is a Christian organisation which helps uh, people struggling uh, amidst persecution around the world. And according to Open Doors, uh, persecution last year, 2019, was increasing around the world. And according to them, one in nine Christians in the world in 2019, so let's just say today, face persecution for their faith. One in nine. The worst country for persecution is, according to them, North Korea, where approximately 60,000 of the country's 300,000 Christians are believed to be in labour camps, presumably because of their faith. The worst country for actual deaths of Christians is Nigeria. Uh, In 2019, 3,731 Christians were known to have been killed for their faith and this occurs in the middle and northern parts of the country where there's you know, things like Boko Haram and, and other forms of opposition like that. 
Shireen and I uh, support uh, some friends of Shireen's who are missionaries in West Africa. And we got an email from them a couple of days ago saying that a local evangelist friend of theirs in West Africa was taken by jihadists on Friday. Uh, And they ask us to pray for him and his family. So I'm just going to stop this service for a minute. I'm going to pray for this man who I don't know who uh, is possibly still in the captivity of jihadists. So wouldn't you just join with me in praying for him? Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we pray for this man who has been taken. We pray for his family. We earnestly ask that you would keep him safe and that he would be quickly released and that perhaps you would work even a miracle in the heart of his captors. Uh, We do pray that you would support him and many others like him around the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I guess one thing that um, looking at the church in Pergamon reminds us of is the plight of our Christians and brothers and sisters around the planet this very day uh, who are struggling uh, because of persecution. Now the sort of persecution faced in Pergamon is really pretty different to the sort of persecution we face in the Blue Mountains today. Obviously the sort of persecution we get here is of a far lower level. It's quite different but it's still very real. Uh, there is persecution for our faith to varying levels in our country. Sure, we can say it's not like in West Africa or North Korea, yet we all know that, but it can still be quite challenging. I've shared in the past that in my first year out of high school, I joined a Bible study group at my church. The leader of my Bible study group came from a Jewish background and when he'd been converted to his faith, uh, his parents, had, his father in particular, disowned him. Now, that's not insignificant persecution, is it, to get disowned by your family because of your faith? And then uh, there's a high schooler I know of who lives around here who at the start of his high school career made uh, his Christian faith known to others and that resulted in him being increasingly teased and I guess he experienced persecution in the forms of loneliness and social isolation. And I'm sure there are many such stories which we could tell. Once again, he wasn't being threatened with death but it can still cut pretty deep, the sorts of opposition we can face. So there is persecution that we need to contend with and we can look to the church at Pergamum and how they were helped for some guidance as to how we and we can encourage others to stand firm. Well, if Pergamum had received a report card, at this point they would have a decisive well done, tick, A, you know, good attitude as well. Now you'd think though that if Pergamum had passed this test with such flying colours, they'd pass every test with flying colours, wouldn't you? But sadly, that's not the entire report card because there are some other areas where there is room for improvement. You see, it seems that they had a weak point and Jesus picks up on this area in that, uh, and this is our second point, they allowed compromise of various sorts within their church. Look at verses 14 and 15 if you could. Let me read it out. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Interesting. It seems that the Christians at Pergamum were faithful under persecution but were folding under seduction. They've passed the hard test and they seem to be facing the easier test. To put it in golfing terms for any golfers who are here, I know there's at least one, it's like you've been in a bunker and you've chipped out of a bunker and you've landed within inches of the hole. Brilliant shot. Then you come to tap the putt in and you miss it. 
This is sort of what the Christians at Pergamum have done. Now, what is this false teaching of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans? Now, we don't specifically know what it was, but we can get a pretty good idea. Balaam, some of you may know, was in the Old Testament. He was a non-Jewish person. He was sort of like a diviner or a sorcerer or a non-Jewish prophet. And he helped encourage the ancient Israelites to succumb to idolatry and to sexual immorality. Idolatry is putting something else in God's place and sexual immorality is obviously a sexual expression inconsistent with biblical teaching, you know, sex outside of marriage and the like. So here, these uh, false teachings, you know, the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, which we think is probably pretty similar, uh, is teaching which encourages idolatry to mix in with Christianity and sexual immorality to mix in with their Christianity. But I guess the point Jesus is making here is that sin, wrongdoing, is serious. It is an offence to God. Now, if we were to think, hold on, idolatry, putting something else in God's place, sexual immorality, you know, sexual expression inconsistent with the scriptures, and and I'm not meaning to sound judgmental here, I'm just stating a fact which I think everyone would agree with, both of those things are rife within our society, aren't they? They're rife within our suburb, right? And so these are the sorts of things which pressure us to today. Now, it's interesting, you might think that the harder thing to withstand is actual danger and persecution. Uh, But sometimes it seems that the seduction to sort of veer off course and engage in a bit of idolatry or sexual immorality can be harder to resist for Christians. Now, I've sometimes observed in the past that in parts of the world today where Christians face really hardcore persecution, like China and Iran, the church there seems to be strong and growing. But in places like, say, Western Europe, where there's no such persecution, the church there seems to be getting strangled by alternative enticements. It's interesting, isn't it? And uh, I think Christians here in our culture are weakened by idolatrous attitudes. We can have idolatrous attitudes. We can place things in the place of God. It could be something as simple as our hobbies, more likely our work or our families. Consider the following danger. Consider a hard-working family man who coaches his son's soccer team. In many ways, an incredibly admirable person. But if that hard-working Christian family man who coaches his kids' soccer teams is happy to do all those things, but resents getting up on Sunday morning to go to church and gets annoyed if the sermon goes for longer than 20 minutes, you know, is, is there an idolatrous attitude sort of creeping in there? Are other things starting to displace God? I mean, the sermon could be rubbish, couldn't it? But hopefully not here. Um, You know, this can creep in. And of course, all forms of sexual immorality, and I've probably given many examples in the past, can creep into devastate Christians and devastate churches as well. You know, it's a real pressure. So what does Jesus say about all of this? Well, look at verse 16. The first word is pretty indicative. Repent. (laughs) Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I may soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, repent means to do a U-turn, to do a 180-degree turn, uh, to stop doing things which are displeasing to God and to endeavour to think and act in accordance with the ways which do please God. Now, remember, in this context, we're not talking about becoming a Christian. We're talking about Christians getting their life back into gear, living as followers of Jesus, to treat God as God and to treat others in a loving way. 
So I guess one of the things we need to watch out for here is are we in danger of being enticed by, say, idolatry of some form or sexual immorality? But that is not the only problem with the church in Pergamum. See, the problem is not just that some people, probably a minority, were engaging in these sorts of practices. If you look closely at verse 16, you'll see that the problem is that the rest of the church seems to be tolerating it or allowing it or putting up with it or not saying anything about it or perhaps not even rebuking people in relation to it. There's the waywardness of a minority but the unhelpful tolerance of the majority. Now, if we see someone who's doing something rather which is unhelpful in the church, we can't force them to stop what they're doing. but We can pray for them and we can endeavour to do things which will help them to get back on track. It seems that perhaps the Pergamon Christians were not doing things to help these wayward people getting back on track. And that's a problem as well. Other people are our responsibility as well. So, there's that. But can I say that different people and different people have different weaknesses and susceptibilities, it can be quite difficult staying sober or staying celibate or staying faithful or staying kind. That can be very challenging. Now, I guess the question I'd like to ask myself and yourself, and don't don't put up your hand and volunteer answers here, but are you facing a threat of compromise in some area of your life at the moment? As you sit here today, are you aware of something which is pressuring you at the moment? You're a Christian, but it's pressuring you to do, say, think or act in some unhelpful way. There, There are all sorts of things that could be. Is that you at the moment? Now, if that is you, and I suspect many of us are facing those sorts of things, how are you planning on resisting it? How are you going to stand firm? Well, As there was in last week's passage, there were various encouragements to stand firm in the face of suffering. Here in this week's passage, there are, and here's our third point, there are various encouragements to resist in the face of compromise. So can I say in these next few minutes, as we look at three particular areas, that you might want to, if you're struggling with compromise at the moment, try to apply these to your personal situation. The first encouragement to resist relates to the fact that it is Jesus who is the speaker encouraging us to resist. In verse 12 it describes Jesus, or it says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. That's referring to Jesus. He has the sharp double-edged sword. Now the the sharp double-edged sword refers to, we believe, the word of God. And this is something by which Jesus skillfully, I guess, wields. So Jesus speaks with great, I guess, expertise and with great authority. And if Jesus speaks about something or other, it would make sense to listen to it. Now, sometimes we can uh, ignore the instructions of our Prime Minister or ignore the suggestions of our church minister or we can ignore what the teacher says or what our bosses say or our parents say or our whatever it may be. But it's incredibly unwise to ignore what Jesus, the Son of God, said. I mean, for a start, Jesus made us, saves us, sustains us, loves us, loves good stuff, hates bad stuff, why would you not listen to him? One of my favourite passages is John chapter 10, verse 10, which says, The thief, referring to Satan, comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, i.e., he's trying to destroy us, right? I, that's Jesus, came that you may have life and have it to the full. You see, Jesus is there wanting to give us a full life. Other conflicting sources are trying to stuff us up. So, 
when you are contemplating gossip or embezzlement or porn or drunkenness or holding on to that grudge and they seem like good ideas to you, ask yourself, where does that idea come from? Because it doesn't come from Jesus. Who are we going to listen to? Jesus, the man with the the sharp double-edged sword or some other rubbish authority who doesn't have our best interest at heart? I mean, it should be a no-brainer who we listen to, isn't it? It should be, but I guess it's worth reminding ourselves. And also, Jesus' instruction here doesn't come from Jesus sitting in an ivory tower because Jesus understands the pressure of facing compromise. I mean, think about Jesus' life on earth. Matthew chapter 4, he's in the wilderness being tempted. He's being tempted to compromise. Go a few years later, Matthew 26, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane wondering whether there's some other way which can avoid the cross. He's being tempted with compromise. I mean, Jesus gets compromise. And so he speaks to us not as someone with authority but also with someone with empathy. Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Just as well he didn't, isn't it? But he gets it. Now this picks up the second idea which is that Jesus knows, I say the word know in uppercase, Uh, you know, 12, 14 point bold underline, he knows the challenges we face. You see verse 13, Jesus says to the church, I know, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. You know, uh, he knows what it's like and he knows how hard it is. Now I said in my sermon last week uh, on the church in Smyrna that that it's great to be known by other people and it's really great to be known by someone when we're facing a challenging situation. And it's really great to be known by God uh, as we face great challenges in our life. There have been various challenging situations I've faced in life, as no doubt you have, and as I've struggled with them, and some of them have been major struggles, it's great to know that God knows and understands my situation. He gets it better than anyone else and probably better than I do myself. And the third encouragement is Jesus' promises to those who resist, to the Christian resistance fighter. Look at verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So what is the resisting Christian promised here? Hidden manna and a white stone with a private name on it. Now, I have to confess that of all the promises and incentives in the book of Revelation, I can't quite really relate to these two very well. I don't read about hidden manna and a white stone with a new name on it and get massively motivated. Uh, That's just... Now, I can only assume that if I'd been in Pergamum in the first century, I would have understood the metaphor, I would have got the metaphor, what it was referring to, and there's... an awful lot of academic discussion as to what these two things really mean, right? But we can only assume that they would have been massively appealing to the Christians such that they would have been prepared to face persecution and to withstand enticements. So it's obviously some high incentive thing. We just don't know exactly what it is. Now, I mean, hidden manna obviously taps into the idea of manna in the wilderness from the Old Testament, and it's probably some sort of you know, incredibly satisfying food given to people from God, perhaps in heaven, something far superior 
So other sorts of food, like food sacrificed to idols or even winning dishes on MasterChef, but it's obviously something whether which was appealing. You know, I'm going to stand firm for that. Similarly, the white stone with your name hidden on it. Uh, one commentary had seven possible interpretations of that uh, and in our staff meeting we come up with a few other ideas as well. So we really don't know what it is, but perhaps the name was very much associated with someone's character in the ancient world. So a new name might mean new character, that God will make us into the people who we really were supposed to be, you know, us in our best form. Maybe that's what it's referring to. Who knows? But there are great incentives. And of course it's really referring to the blessings and joys, not just that we can experience in this life in part, but in full in the new heavens and the new earth. So let me conclude. You're sitting at a party and a joint is passed to you. You are in your bedroom uh, on a conference in some hotel. Your work colleague comes in and sprawls across the bed. You're looking at what you're going to preach on next Sunday in Hong Kong and you realise it's, I don't know, Mark chapter 13 or Revelation 21 and you realise, I'm not supposed to preach about this but that's where I'm up to in the series. What are you going to do? There will be the pressure to compromise just this once, just once, once won't matter. Do you succumb or do you resist? Well, Jesus, the Son of God, who loves you, who made you, who died for you, who sustains you, who loves you, who promises you life to the full, who understands your situation, who understands compromise and who promises incredible rewards for Christians who stand firm in the faith, that Jesus says to resist. Resisting is worth it. So the big idea is on the bottom of the sheet, Christian compromise, question mark, well, resistance is worth it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do pray that this passage and others would absolutely convince us that resisting compromise is worth it, whether it be threats to our life or just enticements to go off track. Help us to resist with your strength and we pray this passage will help us to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.